Welcome to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhamford.org. James 4 is where we're going to be today. We're continuing to crank through our series, so you can flip your Bible open to James chapter 4. Uh, if you have your phone, you can do it on your phone um, as well. And as you're doing that, I'm going to share a little bit with you. Um, I know I'm not alone in this room as a, uh, as a dad, many people who would consider themselves dads um, in the room. Um, and, uh, and growing up, my dad did his best. It was just me and my brother. My dad did his best to make sure that we knew that, uh, we, like, that, that he was going to encourage us, right? Like that he was proud of us and, you know, as any good dad probably, probably would. And so um, my dad came up with nicknames for both my brother and myself um, uh, growing up. And so when my brother was younger, he was very skinny, very thin, and very long, right? And so uh, my brother, like during the first year of life, my dad gave him the nickname Pipe Man, right? Just like a long, skinny pipe, like Pipe Man. Like only dads give nicknames like that. Like, where did that come from? You look like a pipe. Okay, cool. Let's move on, right? So my brother got the nickname Pipe Man because he was long and skinny. Then I, uh, I came around, and my nickname was based on the fact that I was more spherical, um, some of you are catching on um, as, a, uh, as a toddler. And so I was like, oh, what's, what's, what's Peter's nickname going to be as a toddler, as a spherical toddler? Uh, great question. Uh, my dad nicknamed me after a round ball of meat and butter. So my nickname became Meatball, um, <laughs> which was like, cool, which is fine, right? You can get away, like when I was younger, like I didn't know, like that was slightly insulting. Um, not even slightly, very insulting. My brother was Pipe Man and I was Meatball. Um, and uh, eventually he, he shortened uh, my nickname just to Meat, right? And so like if you weren't paying attention too much, like he would say Meat and people would be like, oh, he probably said Pete, but just like stuttered and said Meat. He said, no, he, he said Meat um, all the time. Um, but especially like when I started playing sports and that sort of thing. I, and, and there were times where, you know, I'd start playing sports. My dad wasn't there when the game started, but he would show up or whatever. And I would always know that my dad had showed up to my game because everybody's, you know, cheering or, you know, whatever and yelling. And then I could always hear, like, if I did something, did something well, just like above the crowd, he would just give him one of these, like, me, like, I consistent, like, as it, from the time I was like in fourth grade all the way through my senior year of high school, right? Like, even like playing water polo and like I would score a goal and you couldn't hear much in the water because of everything going on and then just consistently just meet. It was like, oh, my dad's there. He's there encouraging me. He's proud. He's proud of me. Um, and, and, and that was good. Like growing up, I knew that I consistently had someone in my corner who was proud of me, who was going to consistently encourage me and, and push me push me forward. And I think that knowledge of someone in your life, someone being proud of us, is crucial to our ability to, to do that, to move forward, to remain steadfast uh, in our lives and that sort of thing. So think for a moment, maybe someone in your life that is proud of you or someone that you are proud of, right? Maybe it's uh, your parents or your grandparents, or maybe it's your, uh, your spouse in some way, or maybe you're really proud of your kids um, for whatever reason. Just, just get in kind of that, that, that mindset, and I think that, that my dad, and I know my dad wasn't proud of me necessarily because of the things that I accomplished. He wasn't proud of me because I scored a goal. He wasn't proud of me because I got a hit or proud of me for whatever reason. He was simply proud of me because I was his son, right? That is the whole reason that my dad was proud of me. Now, granted, when I did those things and, and accomplished some of those different things that, that make him want to affirm his proudness, his pride in pride is the word, pride in me, yes, right? 
But as we're looking through Scripture, especially as we're looking at, at James chapter 4, uh, we have an issue with pride. Because pride, especially like how we're using it now, is an essentially, like it's an essential element to making things better, right? Making sure that like, I, you're proud of your kids. You want to encourage your kids. I'm proud of the work that I do. I want, to be, uh, I want Sarah to be proud of me as a husband, right? Or my kids proud of me as their dad or whatever it may be. And, and I think that should be true in your life as well. But in the Bible, pride is often seen as a negative personality trait, something that we should actually avoid to the best of our ability. And so what the, what the Bible means by pride when it's seen negatively is similar to like this boastful arrogance, right? You've all probably met somebody with some sort of boastful arrogance in their, uh, in their life. Oftentimes it can be linked to, to vanity or kind of a distorted sense of one's value, the importance that they have in the world, like everything kind of has to revolve around, around you. Pride can even be related to, to envy, and we're going to get to that in a little bit in this passage we're going to go through today, covetousness or greed or different things, even the belief that your desires are more important than other people's desires. So remember that later on when you're deciding what restaurant you want to go to lunch at. If your desires are stronger than your spouse's, you have a pride issue. So just remember that, okay? Anyway, it's a joke, guys. Relax. So James' audience, this is what we're going to get to. James' audience here, okay? James' audience seemingly had issues with pride. They lacked this personality trait called humility. And actually, a lot of Christians and a lot of churches today suffer from the same issues. So James' words are actually timely, incredibly vital to us as a church, and so to give you a little bit more background on this series in the book of James, there's at least four and possibly five men by the name of James that are mentioned in the New Testament. So just be aware of that as you're reading through the New Testament. Just because it says James doesn't mean it is necessarily the same James every time. The one who wrote the book of James, what we are walking through, um, bears the name of the, or he is James, the brother of Jesus. So essentially he is the son of Mary and Joseph. So I say brother, you want to split hairs, half brother. Okay, but he is Jesus's brother. And this James was not a disciple during Jesus's ministry. James is one of the reasons that I am so convinced of the fact that Jesus was who he said he was. And I don't know about you, but I grew up, like I said, with my brother, right? And now if my brother came to me when he was 30 years old and said, Peter, I am the savior of the world. I'm going to start my earthly ministry. I would probably respond in the same way James does in the beginning of the book of Mark. When his whole family is like, Jesus, you got to stop, man. Like, people think you're crazy. Like, for real, you need to cut it out. Okay? So that's how James kind of responds. But then three years later, Jesus goes to the cross. He is resurrected, and James sees his brother resurrected. It'd be hard enough to see a guy who died and then resurrected, but then also recognize it was your brother and you were wrong about him being the savior of the world in the beginning. Right? If anybody is going to be a skeptic of what Jesus did, it's going to be this guy, James. So James ends up becoming the leader of the Jerusalem church, one of the main leaders of those, of those dudes. And James here, he identifies himself as a servant of God. That's, how, that's like how he describes himself in the book of James. He just goes to servant of God. Now, I don't know about you, okay, but if I'm going to name drop somebody and I'm related to the Savior of the world, I'm name dropping the Savior of the world, right? Like James, if I'm James, I'm like, hello, my name is James, brother of Jesus, Savior of the world, right? I shared a bunk bed with him. 
James doesn't do that. He doesn't think that's the most important thing. He thinks the most important thing for his audience to recognize is that, hey, I am simply a servant of God. Those are my credentials. And so the recipients of this letter are probably specifically Jewish believers and probably members of the original church that has been started in Jerusalem who were forced to flee at this point because of all of the, uh, because of the, the, uh, the persecution that started when Stephen was martyred back in Acts chapter 8. So in Acts chapter 8, Stephen is martyred and the church flees. And so what James does at this point is he writes a letter to all of his people as the person who used to be their shepherd, the person who used to be their pastor. They are all now gone. And James at this point is like, I need to encourage all of these people. I know their downfalls. I know their issues. I'm going to encourage them in these different ways. And so it would be natural for James as their spiritual leader to encourage them in the midst of all of these trials that they're walking through. But James holds a very high standard, holds very high expectations for his followers, for his readers. And like we've said before, he is very black and white. In this passage today, he is specifically wants his audience to tone down the rivalries that we see in their communities, some of which involve conflicts even between like rich and poor. James makes it very, very clear that receiving Christ does not automatically instill in Christians attitudes that are from Jesus. Those are things that we have to continually working on. But after reading and studying through the book of James, I've, I've noticed a trend. And James, like I've said before, very black and white. Do this, don't do that. And today is going to be no different. James is going to say, do this, don't do that. But one of the issues we seem to have as Christians is that oftentimes we feel like we need to wait on God to make something abundantly clear for us in order to move forward. We tend to kind of hyper-spiritualize things oftentimes. As a church, as, as individuals, like a lot of times we see it here when it comes to serving. Like, I don't know where I want to serve. I'm waiting for God's will for, for me to understand where I should serve. Or I don't know where I'm supposed to give. I'm waiting for God's will to show up in my life and then I'll get. I don't know what job to take. I don't know if we should start having kids or not. I don't know if we should get married or not or on and on and on. I'm waiting for God's will and we're hyper-spiritualizing everything. And so while we have said all along that the book of James is about kind of what a mature Christian should look like, I've been convicted because James says nowhere that this is what a mature Christian should look like. This is simply the bar that he puts in place for Christians in general. It's not, oh, a mature Christian will have more faith, a less mature Christian will have less faith. It's like, no, a mature Christian will do X, Y, and Z. No, a Christian will do X, Y, and Z. And so that's what we're going to continue to push in here, push into here in James chapter 4, starting in verse 1. This is what it says. It says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So James kicks off this section with pretty, pretty tough language, essentially saying that there are some internal disputes within the church, and he's not okay with it. Okay, James says that there are fights and quarrels in verse 1. Okay, that first term, that fight, term, it implies, in the Greek, it implies strong, like, adversarial relationships or, or th that are confrontational in nature. Like, the original Greek 
signifies between two armies, essentially, going, going at each other, is what this kind of would imply. The second term has a sense of like verbal spats, nasty exchanges between rivals at this point. So these are, these are words that you, you wouldn't necessarily want associated with the church. It's not like, oh, we're going to get together and iron sharpens iron. So sometimes there's friction and we're getting better with each other. No, these are confrontations and disputes and issues within the church that James is like, grow up, knock it off, don't do this. Reminds me a little bit of like the Hatfield-McCoy rivalry back in the day, like old school Hatfield and McCoys, for those of you who enjoy westerns or folklore or whatever. Like these people, the Hatfields and the McCoys, were incredibly similar types of people, farmers, ranchers, like people who mostly held the same value in the same place in the same time, but couldn't get on the same page because of small quarrels, small issues where people weren't willing to swallow their pride. I was actually looking up a little bit more of the Hatfields and McCoys. Did you know that 12 people died because a pig was given to the Hatfields and they actually were supposed to be given to the McCoys? 12 people! Simply because someone was like, here's your pig, and they were like, thanks. And the McCoys were like, wait, hold up, that's our pig. 12 people, dead. Craziness, man. So anyway, it's an oversimplification, but I thought it was interesting. But essentially, this battle... Like, this is the same thing that is going on in James. It's simply because they have desires that are battling within them, and they're not willing to swallow their pride for the greater good of everybody. And in this case, specifically for the greater good of the church. So essentially, this battle originates internally, inside the hearts of the individuals. Is kind of how James lays it out. Church fights that happen internally inside of churches often results from personal kind of individual issues from strong-willed people who kind of have selfish motives and tolerate no other, no other opinions. It's my way or the highway. This is the way that you are supposed to do things. You cannot change things. This is how we do them. Why? Because this is how we've always done them. Walk the logic back. Well, if this is how we've always done them, at some point, someone had to say, this is how we do those things. This is where a lot of issues within the church come in. And so rather than forbid fighting, James actually does something a whole lot more difficult. James could have said, well, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. But he didn't use that mom language. He said um, that essentially um, James goes after the root causes behind these struggles. Those desires can be, can be so strong that their outcome might be murder. That's kind of what he says. He uses the word kill in the, uh, in the passage. Maybe more figurative here, but the language is clear. Either way, whether or not the animosity among these believers have risen to the point of murder, which is unlikely, James' message here is incredibly clear. This is a bad situation. Don't do this. Don't partake in infighting. And like I said, we see it all the time. People jockeying for their own positions rather than seeking unity and peace within the church to affect change across the kingdom of God rather than change for their own tiny little kingdom. Well, how come this ministry gets more money than that ministry? Or how come we're focusing on this school and not that school? How come I can't use money the way that I want to use money? I gave the money. And on and on and on it goes. And it's just absolutely ridiculous that we can't come to a place and simply check our ego at all places at the church where we're supposed to seek unity above all other things. One of my personal favorite issues is arguing over carpet colors. Churches split over stuff like this. I'm not joking you. And, and I shared this like six or seven months ago that, man, carpet colors, who gets in arguments over carpet colors? Then I had some people in our church who've been a member of the church for a really long time. They're like, hey, just so you're aware, <laughs> we got in a really bad argument over carpet colors about 40 years ago. And I was like, oh, shoot, my bad, right? I'm glad we're not there anymore. But that's a sign of dysfunction in the church, that we're more concerned about our own preferences than we are about the kingdom of God and walking that, walking that forward. 
Why? Why do these things happen? Because our desires get in the way of what is actually right. So then James shifts his focus after this, recognizing the real issue here is less about our desires and probably more likely about a lack of prayer. It's like, hey, it's probably not your, your own selfish desires, but it, maybe it's a lack of prayer. And the reader's personal rivalries aren't getting them what they want. So essentially, they're fighting over a pie without enough pieces to satisfy everybody. Okay, so we can essentially look this to mean that envy and greed are the re- root, root excuse me, of the problem. It's probably talking about infighting over the funds of the congregation here. And these battles can be the nastiest of all. But then this teaches them that the underlying problem is actually found in their prayer lives. That their prayer requests are made with wrong motives. <clears throat> reflecting envy, reflecting jealousy, reflecting the things that they personally want. Their requests are for things that they can consume to satisfy their desires. God isn't going to honor your prayers made from our own evil desires or our own selfish motives. Know how I know? Because if that was true, the Giants would win the World Series every single year. Right? Why? Because they're my selfish desires. Those are my motives. That's what I want to have happen. Now, how else I know? Like, my life would be really, really easy. I would never have any issues ever come up in my life. Why? Because my prayers come from my own selfish desires oftentimes. This is what I want to have happen in my life. God doesn't grant those things. God doesn't honor those things out of our own selfish motives. So to pray correctly, to pray effectively, means that selfishness that is fueling the fighting has to be put to bed. And that's what he's talking about here. So in short, aligning your prayers with the will of God, with what God actually wants to have happen, will take away the motives tearing apart the community is what James is communicating in these first three verses. But then he continues on in verse four. He says, you adulterous people, which is always a great way to get people on your side, by the way. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. So James moves on from conflict caused by envy and kind of wanting our own way to another problem. James shifts now to this issue of pride. James tells us here that we must be at war with the pride in our own souls. We consistently need to be putting those things to bed. And so James begins by introducing a pretty stark choice He says his readers need to choose between friendship with the world and friendship with God. Be careful with how you interpret this. Oftentimes what Christians will do is they'll interpret this as, oh, I can't be a friend of the world, so I'm going to completely remove myself from the world. I'm going to completely remove myself from any sin, from any issues, from any people that may possibly drag me down. And so because of that, I'm going to cut off relationships with people who don't think like me. I'm going to cut off relationships with people who don't believe like me. I'm going to cut off relationships with people who have alcohol. I'm going to cut off relationships with people who go trick-or-treating. And on and on and on it goes until eventually we find ourselves so isolated, there's no way for us to be able to impact the world with the good news of the kingdom of God. That is not what James is saying here. Okay, James is not saying you cannot be a part of what is happening in the world. He is saying you cannot have both, though. If you choose the world and just the world, you choose to be an enemy of God. And he calls them an adulterous people. That's what he's talking about, that you are going to be cheating on your relationship with God with things of the world. And James uses this word adultery in a way that would have been common for the prophets of the Old Testament. Gotta love the Old Testament. 
right? And, and oftentimes, Israel, they use this metaphor for Israel. Every time God's people wanted something other than to honor God, they would call them adulterers. Stop being adulterous people. You should have one love, God. And so that's what they're calling them over and over and over again. And this is what James is saying again, black and white, no gray area. So for James to choose the world over God is to commit spiritual adultery. Christians, if you have said yes to Jesus here, we are going to find it difficult to win the world for Christ if we completely and totally withdraw from the world. Right? That's why we want you to have friendships with people who don't think like you. Please have friendships with people who don't think like you. Please have friendships with people who don't believe the same thing as you or drink the same thing as you or knock on doors at the same time of day as you. Things like community participation, having non-Christian friends and neighbors is not this spiritual adultery. The danger lies in allowing your love for the world to eclipse your love for God. That's what James is warning of here. Our loyalty and our commitment must be to God and to God alone. And this shows how much grace he gives us then. That means in turn, we should, be fe- we should be vessels of that grace. So God is pouring out grace, grace upon grace upon grace. He's given us so much grace over and over and over again. What is it that we do with that grace? Do we gobble it up and take it for ourselves and be prideful with it and almost get this kind of spiritual arrogance to ourselves, have a little bit of envy mixed in there? Or are we, or are we becoming vessels of that same grace? And saying, hey, look, like I know Jesus and Jesus has given me grace upon grace and I'm, I'm a sinner. I am the worst of you. But Jesus has given me grace. He has forgiven me. And guess what's true? He wants to give it to you as well. That's how we should be working in this. These, these vessels of grace, our envy and pride issues don't have to have their source or will not have their source with God. And so our problems can't be pinned on God because he's shown more than enough grace and more than enough mercy for us to be able to get rid of our envy, for us to be able to get rid of our our, our pride and any obsession that may seem out of place. And the interesting thing is, you know, human pride actually brings brings about the wrath of God. You're new to church? Welcome. We're talking about wrath today. Congratulations. But it brings out the the wrath of God because pride is self-exalting, right? Look at me. Look how important I am. Look how big of a deal I am. You need to decide the same things that I feel like we should do. This is actually the same sin that caused the entire fall of man. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. You don't know what Adam and Eve, that, that first sin that happened with the fall of man, right? It wasn't that she just simply disobeyed God. It's that she was prideful in the midst of it. She wanted to be like God. She wanted to be equal to God. And so because of the fact that she had a pride issue, like steeped in envy, she was like, I want to be like God. I'm going to take a bite of that apple, even though he told me not to. Not apple, fruit. Doesn't say apple. Remember that. Anyway, the flip side of that coin, though, is that while God brings down the proud, as it says, he doesn't ignore the humble. So those who lack that pride that God hates will be given this sustaining grace to get through those difficult times that you have in life, through your own difficult circumstances. circumstances. Right, think about pride as, it's, it's wrapped in self-love. Like pride is a type of, of self-worship, if you will, allowing like our personal selves to become our own idols. That I am more important than everybody. 
that I am the best at everything that I do. And this is every bit as much of spiritual adultery as like love of money or love of power or lusting after somebody or whatever it may be. This is spiritual adultery. And God doesn't tell us to hate ourselves, but our sense of self-worth has to have limits. Like it, ha- like it has to have limits. We did our, uh, a whole series on uh, marriage and relationships like a month ago and the previous months before that. And as we're walking through it, we just kept coming back to like outserve and out-sacrifice for your spouse over and over and over again. And it wasn't because your worth is any less than that person, but it's because you want to honor them and put them above you over and over and over again. It's the same thing with this, like our sense of self-worth. Just because, just because like, like you are thinking of yourself less does not mean you are worth anything less than that. So how do we escape from this kind of tightening grip of pride when we're trying so hard to follow God? So James reminds us here that we can only escape pride by recognizing we are saved by God's grace. That's the only way we can escape pride. We're not saved by how much better we are than everybody else. We're not saved by how much, how much greater we are at our jobs or how much better of a parent you are or how much better of a mom you are or dad or whatever it may be. We're not saved by any of those things. We are simply saved by grace and grace alone. And I think this is where a lot of Christians get stuck. Because I think even in Christianity, I think oftentimes we just feel like we've arrived, like we have all of the answers like, I don't, need to, I don't need to be in the midst of a small group because I know all of the answers to the questions that they're going to have. Well, it may be true, but have you thought about the person who is coming who doesn't necessarily have all the answers? And if you're sitting there thinking that you have all the answers, maybe you might be beneficial to that other person for being in that group. Also, hear it from me. You do not have all of the answers. Both of those things can be true, but we just think we've kind of arrived as a Christian, that we know the answers, we know how to act, we know who to call, we know our basic theology, or we've simply been going to a church longer than somebody else. And so because of the longevity that I have within a church, that somehow makes us more important than the Christian who just walked in for the first time and gave their life to Jesus. That's not true. All of us are on equal footing. The Bible is very clear about that, especially in Romans. Romans tells us over and over and over again that all of us are sinners in need of a Savior. So when you're looking at your own self-worth, just recognize through the lens of Scripture, through the lens of God, through the lens of Jesus, all of us are equal. Sinners deserving of death. Because Romans 3.23 tells us for the wages of sin is death. So all of us should be on the same playing field. But somehow we get stuck and we just think, well, I've, I've arrived. That's pride. That's sinful. All of us are equal as sinners in need of a Savior. So then James comes to this conclusion in James 4, 7 through 10. This is what it says. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will will lift you up. So James tells us readers to submit to God. That's that very first portion there in verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. So he's going all the way back up to the beginning of chapter 4. He's saying, because of the fact that you are having infighting and quarreling among yourselves, because of the fact that you're prideful and you think of yourselves better than you actually are, because of all of these things, verse 7, then submit yourself to God. So because of your sin issue, submit yourself to God. And beyond that, 
resist the devil. So if you read that passage closely, it reads like the other side of our submission to God is our resistance to Satan. Yeah, there's a very real spiritual battle. If you're new to the things of church, don't get super caught up on this. But there is a very real spiritual battle that is happening that most of us don't have the privilege of being able to see. But there's a very real spiritual battle. And Satan, the enemy, wants to be our master. He wants to be our partner in spiritual adultery. And so James uses the word resist, which in this case is the opposite of submit. Resistance to the devil is a refusal to submit to temptation or influence. This command actually comes with a promise, which I actually really like. If you, again, Read in verse 7, submit yourselves unto God, resist the devil, and promise he will flee from you. There's a promise there. The devil can be persistent, but James promises that if we resist him, he will eventually abandon us as his target. Which I think is funny because oftentimes we think of Satan and God and they're just having like this big, you know, spiritual wrestling match and all these things. But in reality, when we actually look at the devil, when we look at Satan, we have to remember that while the devil is a power, powerful spiritual being, he is not all powerful. He is not omniscient. He is not omnipresent. He is not omnipotent. He is none of those things. So he is finite because he is a created being. And I think oftentimes we forget that. Meaning he is a created being, his power, his influence are limited and have to be used strategically and sparingly. So here's a couple things that are true. One, resist him and he'll go somewhere else because you're not worth his time anymore because his time is finite. But two, the other thing my guess is, is that Satan's probably not spending a whole lot of time hanging out with you. Not because you're not super important, not because I'm not super important or anything like that, but simply because Satan is probably spending all of his time on people who are influencing the kingdom of God in massive ways. Massive ways. He's talking to the early church, he's talking about James here, who Satan probably spent some time trying to influence James or Paul or the apostle Peter or John or even current day head, people who are heads of the evangelical church. All of those different things. That's where he's spending a lot of his time. However, the enemy is the same. They are finite. And so because of that, if you resist him, he is going to leave. And we forget that oftentimes. So we live our best lives when we are in submission to God and we resist the devil. That's what James is saying here. But then James kind of turns to our relationship with the Lord right after that, refining his command to submit and kind of offering a, a promise for those who do so. And this is largely where we need to land today, I feel like, and I think this is where James is pointing us to as well, because verse 8 reminds us that if we come near to God, James promises that God will meet us. It actually says God, God is already near to us and meets us when we look for him. This is the opposite of Satan who flees when we resist him. God is never going to run away from you. If you have come to a saving faith in Jesus, God is never going to flee from you. He is never going to run from you. Even when, and hear me on this, even when you have neglected your relationship with him, he will never flee from you. When you have come to a saving faith in Jesus, his spirit comes up and takes residence inside of you. You become sealed by his spirit is what it's called. And it does not matter what you do. It does not matter what you say. You cannot get rid of him. 
He is always near to you. Joshua 1.5 actually tells us that. This is the Lord talking to Joshua here. It says, no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. Again, this is a promise to Joshua, not to us, but it speaks to God's character. He says, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I think oftentimes we get in our heads that God is mad at us because we've neglected him. One day of not reading his word turns into a year of not reading his word, turns into 10 years of not reading his word, and you think to yourself, man, God's probably really upset at me. I got to get my life in order before I, before I really reach out to God in some way, shape, or, or form. Kind of like a friend of ours, like when you do something they don't like, they start drawing away from you, right, slowly but surely. And for some reason, we assume that God has just kind of picked up and, and left us, when in reality, poor decision after poor decision after poor decision on our part has moved us away from him. It is nothing that God has done. The Bible is full of scripture telling us that God wants to be in communion with us, wants to love us, wants to have a very real relationship with us. So then the question becomes, how do we come near to the Lord? Well, the rest of the verse tells us a few things. Tells us two things specifically. It says we need to have clean hands, wash your hands, right? And we need to have pure hearts, Those are the two things that we are supposed to have. In other words, you need to be doing good, not bad, clean hands. And you need to have good intentions while you're doing it. Pure hearts. Clean hands, pure hearts. This should define our worship to God. This should define our relationship with God, to be able to focus on no one else. We cannot be double-minded in nature, as James says. And so in verses 9 and 10, right, going all the way back, he's instructed us to submit to guys, instructed us to resist the devil. We're supposed to draw near to him with the confidence that God has with all of his his grace. He's going to draw near to us. We're to cleanse our hands. We're to cleanse our hearts of sinfulness, double-mindedness, all these things that we had been choosing. And then in this verse, in verses 9 and 10, he calls us to engage in what I would assume is kind of an emotional response to sinfulness, which is weird. Like as you're reading verses 9 and 10 where it says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. That seems very, very opposite of the way that the American church kind of places itself in people's lives. Like notice it said, you know, you're supposed to grieve and you're supposed to mourn and you're supposed to be sad. But that's weird because the beginning of James, James chapter 1, verse 2, it talks about that the Christian should be marked by their joy. James here isn't talking about a permanent state. You should not be walking around with ash on your head and weeping all the time. That's not what James is talking about here. Because if we're going back, James is admonishing these people. James is telling them, hey, look, you are sinners. You are sinful. You have all this infighting. You have all this pride. So, verse 7, submit to God, resist the devil, and now you need to mourn the sin that you've been dealing with. That's what he's talking about. We need to have time and opportunity to be, oftentimes the church says it is broken before the Lord. That's what James is talking about here. Mourning the sin that we have in our lives. James is rejecting us through, or, or directing us through a season of repentance. Right, when we've We've recognized our own sin. True believers, people who have come to a saving faith, those who claim to believe God and received his gift of salvation, we ought to feel shame and sadness over our sin, brokenness over our sin temporarily. This is not a 
permanent time. This is not a permanent state of being, rather. Because if we've been destructively living only for ourselves, realizing this, like, this should make us sad. If we have said yes to Jesus, the, the best yes that we could ever possibly make, and then we spend all of this time then rejecting him. We spend all of this time choosing sin, choosing these other idols, choosing pride, infighting among ourselves. Man, we should be provoked to grief the lot, like the lost hours, the lost days, the last years that were just spent in pursuit of just like worthless things. We've wasted opportunities to love people well then. We've wasted opportunities to rest in the peace that God has for us, the grace that God has for us. We've wasted opportunities to be able to serve our world in a very real way, to tell people about Jesus. That's why you grieve. You don't grieve because God is disappointed. Yeah, I'm sure he's not happy about it. But you grieve because you've lost the opportunity to impact the kingdom of God in a very real way, in a way that only you and you personally can impact the kingdom of God. So why do we grieve our sin? Lost opportunity. We've lost opportunity. We've wasted a bunch of time, so we mourn because of it. So we shouldn't be too quick to rush on to a, a status of like everything is fine now, right? This is my favorite. As I was a youth pastor, like camps, man, decision night is always the best. Everybody's crying because they're tired from no sleep and only eating sugar and running around on the field all day. And the speaker comes out and it's like, if, if anybody would like to give their life to Jesus and like automatically like tears, like people were bawling, right? And it's like, wow, the whole youth group accepted Jesus for the first time tonight? That's weird because you've been going to church for a long time in your life. And then I have conversations with them later on. And all of them are just like, yeah, I, oh, I repented and I'm so on fire for Jesus now and I'm going to read the whole Bible tonight, right? And like all these things. And I'm just like, just chill out. It is okay to mourn your sin. Actually, James tells us that we should be mourning that sin temporarily. Like, the, like, the, like tears are an appropriate and necessary response if that repentance is genuine, as you receive, like, like the, the end of those tears after receiving God's grace and forgiveness again. Like this season of grief and mourning and brokenness is not supposed to be a lifestyle and it's definitely not supposed to be a pattern. Especially because after our season of grief, the very last piece that he gives us in verse 10, James reminds us that God is gonna do what? He's gonna lift us up. So after all of these things, after all of these sin issues, after all of you adulterous people with the infighting, with the pride, you've submitted to God, you've resisted Satan, right? You've done all these, you've grieved your sin appropriately, and now what is God going to do? He is now going to lift you up. So the question then becomes, what does this mean for us today? I think if you take all of this, beginning to end, right? James 4, verse 1, all the way through James 4, verse 10, whether it's the pointless quarreling or being too comfortable in the world or not submitting to God or anything like I think if you take all of these things, we should be able to recognize that while our spiritual condition, hear me on this, while our spiritual condition has everything to do with God, meaning you did nothing to earn your salvation. Jesus is the one who went to the cross. Jesus is the one who raised three days later. You did not earn your salvation. Jesus did that. So while your spiritual condition has everything to do with God, your spiritual attitude and your nearness to God has everything to do with you. Let me say that again for the note takers. While your spiritual condition 
relies on God. Your spiritual attitude relies on you. I think this is what James is pushing at for the entire book of James. And like I said before, we hyper-spiritualize the whole thing. I got to wait for God's will. I got to wait for God's will. And James is just like, no, just do the stuff you're supposed to do. Like, this is how a Christian should act. So do these things. Say yes in this instance. Say no in this instance. And hopefully you've come to a saving faith in Jesus. And, and you have nothing to do with your saving faith in Jesus. He went to the cross on your account. He died for the sins that you have committed. He was raised three days later. You had nothing to do with that. So the salvation, your salvation is the Lord's. How you respond to that is up to you though. And I think we write it off. What's the will of God? How am I supposed to know what God wants me to do? I don't know, that app that you haven't opened in a really long time on your phone, the Bible, it says the Bible on it, or the one that you're carrying around right now and it's more of a prop than it is a useful tool. That thing, the very word of God, like that's how you know what it is that you are supposed to do. So what, it, like, your response to that is up to you. So are you near to God? No, no. That's on you, it's not on him. Like, are you joyful? No. That's on you, that's not on him. Like church, I think that if we just recognized that we have far more control over our spiritual attitude than we assume that we do. We have far more control over, over choosing joy. We have far more control over, over allowing us ourselves to just submit to God and obey God than we think we do. Oftentimes, you just think it's just like this magic wand. They're like, oh, I said yes to Jesus, and I'm perfect now. That's not how it works. The end of every service, we pray the ABCs. We'll do the same thing today. But we say, hey, look, you are spiritually dead where you stand. A, admit. Admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. You're spiritually dead is what we're saying in that time. I admit that. But be a believe that Jesus sent his son to die on a cross for my sins. I believe that. So I believe that while I was spiritually dead, Jesus came and he paid for all of my sins for me. And see, choose, I'm going to follow him forever, meaning I'm going to submit to God for the entirety of my life. And when I do sin, there's an opportunity for mourning. But I'm not going to stay in that. Why? Because my spiritual condition has everything to do with Jesus. My spiritual attitude has everything to do with me. Amen, church? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thanks for church. Thanks for Thanksgiving. Thanks for your word. Thanks for the book of James. God, we're just, man, I'm thankful today. And God, I just, I pray for all of these issues that we see in the book of James today for the attitudes, for the infighting, for the pride, for all of that stuff. And I pray that as he concluded in verses 7 through 10, that as he concluded some of that, that idea that we need to mourn and grieve our sin. God, I pray right now that your spirit, for those of us who have said yes to you, that your spirit would just kind of elevate that sin that's in our lives right now, that we should be grieving that is causing lost opportunity for us, lost opportunity for your kingdom, not for our own selfishness, not for our own pride, but lost opportunity for growing your kingdom. What is that sin, Father? Allow your spirit to elevate that in us today. And God, I pray we would indeed be broken over that sin, that we would mourn that sin deeply, but we wouldn't stay in that sin. We wouldn't stay in that mourning period, 
that we would recognize that you've taken care of it, we'll grieve the lost opportunity, and then we will choose to follow you every single day of our lives from this point forward. Make that evident and true in our lives, Father. And for those, maybe it's you've said yes to Jesus a thousand times. Maybe you've never yet said yes to Jesus with heads still bowed and eyes still closed. If that's you and you recognize that your spiritual state is you are dead in your transgressions, you are spiritually dead because you are a sinner in need of a Savior. If that's you today and you want to make a profession of faith with us today, I would encourage you to just pray along with me. Somebody say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. But B, I believe you sent your son to die on a cross for me. And C, I would choose to follow him every single day of my life. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.